Well, once again, I not only apologize for my voice today, <clears throat> and I pray it not be a distraction to you hearing God's word, but also for that incident in the, in the New Testament reading. I thank you, Mark, for being nimble <laughs> and making the quick change there. But yes, you can see how the text fits a little better with the, uh, with the, the birth of Isaac, of course, and the, the miraculous <clears throat> uh, uh, work of Isaac's birth and the prophecy of such a birth. Our text this morning is uh, Genesis 21, uh, verses 1 through 7. Let me go ahead and read it because this is, the, this is the birth narrative of Isaac, this child of promise. It's on page 18, and then we'll jump into it. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne a son in his old age. Well, as we've said, we are, we're in the middle of a study of Christ in the Old Testament. This is a study we started before Advent. We've been working our way through the Old Testament, considering some of the stories that lay the groundwork for the coming of Christ, and in such a way that we might read the Old Testament properly. We're wanting to read the Old Testament so that we see Jesus. And we see him not as sort of this flat figure that just descends out of heaven, does some work of salvation and ascends again, just kind of blips in and blips out, but rather as the fulfillment of the whole story of Israel, right? He's a, he's a round figure. He's a figure that is, the things he does are loaded with meaning. He says, I come not to abolish the law. I'm not scraping away what was there and saying, here's something new, but I've come to fulfill the law. All the law and the prophets, he say, testify of me. So we've been jumping back and considering these stories in the Old Testament so that we might understand Christ rightly and so that we might understand the Old Testament rightly. For to understand it apart from Jesus Christ is not to understand it. Sure, some of the moral stories, the morals are good, but they're just not the meaning of the text. Christ is the meaning of the text, and the moral stories flow out from that. So we must understand uh, these things in that way. They're driving us forward. And again, when Jesus comes and ultimately is not recognized by his own people. It ultimately demonstrates that though they searched the law and the prophets for wisdom and knowledge, though they had many of them memorized, in fact, they did not have them. They did not understand the truth of them. Whatever they did with the Old Testament, as religious as they were, ultimately, what was it good for if when God himself comes in the flesh, they crucify him? If when God himself comes in the flesh, they reject him and say, no, not your will, but our will be done. And what's the good, what is the good of all the religion? And we have to ask ourselves the same question. If Christ is not at the center, what is the good of all your religion? What's the good of your being here? It's worthless. In fact, it's weights around your neck. I told my students this the other day in theology class. I said to them, you know, your being in here is a very dangerous thing. I said, it's an exciting thing. We get to talk about deep and rich things, but let me tell you something, it's a dangerous thing too. Because if we don't use this class, we were talking about the attributes of God at the time, and so I said, we're going to spend time the next day in prayer. I said, we're going to come. I want you all to go home and write a prayer. We'll come in and read it the next day because we are not going to let, or I'm going to try not to let this class become academic. 
because so I want you to go home, write a prayer involving the attributes of God. We're going to come back and we're going to pray to begin our class. I said, because this is dangerous what we're doing. If you take the content of this class and it drives you to worship, if you take knowledge about God and it drives you to know God, then there's nothing better. But if not, I'm, <laughs> this is what I told my 10th graders, if not, then this class will be a weight around your neck. Like giving you a pile of stones and throwing you in the ocean, it'll only bring you down faster because you are given knowledge about God and not to worship him with this, not, not to be drawn to him. And in fact, it's just, it's more condemnation upon you. You knew better. So let's be careful. And the same is true for Israel through the Old Testament and the same is true for us. That's not usually the way most 10th graders get spoken to in most schools around the country, but they got that talk from me. That's what happens when your teacher's a pastor. So you get talks like that. But so we come today as we're making our way through. We're on the second Sunday of Advent. And we skipped over, as we said, some text in our walk through Christ, uh, through the Old Testament, excuse me. <clears throat> and now we're going back and picking up on a couple of them that are birth narratives. That's the theme that we're doing in Advent uh, to just prepare us for the birth of our Savior. Last week, we considered the birth of Cain and Abel and considered the blood that speaks better things than that of the blood of Abel, a blood that doesn't speak condemnation, but a blood that speaks forgiveness, which I got to share with you in the assurance of pardon. Right? Abel's blood cries out, you are guilty to Cain. God hears the blood. He says, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. But we have a blood, says the author of Hebrews, that cries out better things. We crucified our brother. We crucified our elder brother. But his blood, rather than crying out condemnation, amazingly, graciously, cries out forgiveness and reconciliation for us and we ought to lay hold of it and praise God we had the privilege to take the Lord's Supper last week and to partake if you will of that blood in the wine of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper well today we come to the birth of Isaac this child of promise and I want us to think just take up three things they're all found in the text there in Genesis 21 <clears throat> for us regarding uh, regarding the birth of Isaac and of course driving our eyes to the eye of Christ uh, to the uh, to Christ so who is Isaac? I've entitled the sermon, What Child Is This? Well, what child is this? First, he's a child of barrenness. He's a child of barrenness. I mean, the thing that strikes us about the whole story is that. Abram's old. Sarah's old. They are past the point of having children. Now, we know that in the beginning, God promised, we'll get to that in a second, but God promised that they'd have a child, but time went on. This is often how it is, right? We have ideas of how God's going to keep his promises to us. And so we can, we've kind of written the narrative. I can see, oh, I see what the Lord is doing here. I'm sure you have had times in your life where you look and say, oh, I see what God's doing here. We try to read God's providence. We try to make sense of it. And oftentimes we find ourselves very frustrated because God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so sometimes he befuddles our plans. Well, I'm sure Abraham... Uh, and Sarah had a thought about what the Lord might do for them, but it was not turning out as they thought. They were not having a child, so they came up with the stupid idea of, of Abram sleeping with Hagar. Time went by, time went by, and God not doing what he said he would do. But God waited, and God waited, and he waited, and he let the barrenness of Sarah really play itself out. He exposed to Abraham and to Sarah 
this central truth. And this truth is one that I think, so right here at the beginning, not that we didn't have any ways to know it beforehand, but, but as we see these different pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, different truths get highlighted. They're all there in all the stories, but different truths through different stories take center stage and get highlighted. And the highlight of this story is the fact that the promise of God will not, cannot come by self-effort. The salvation that God promises, the amazing things that God promises, are not going to come by your self-effort. You've got you to accept that right now. You've got to come to grips with that, that the promises which God has given to you are promises that he alone will give. And that point is drawn out here in the story in that, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. Oh, he takes him out in chapter 15. Oh, look at the stars in the sky. Your descendants will outnumber them all. The sand on the seashore, they'll outnumber them all. But I'm going to do it. I'm, gonna, I'm going to give this to you. And Sarah's barrenness lays the groundwork and makes it very, very, very obvious. And really the whole story of Israel then should have been looking back to this, their foundation. This is the foundational story of their identity. They flow out of Isaac. And at the very beginning of the story is this point. It's not him who runs nor him who wills, but God who chooses. It's God himself who will accomplish these things, the work of his salvation. Remember what he says. I know Jake, I think, used, I forget, what Jake, where you used this verse, but I remember using it and made a dad proud because it's, uh, it was one of these things where he had to choose a verse and speak it. Maybe it was at one of the Youth Conquest Banquet or something. But it's a verse that I love in Exodus 3. I don't know, is it 14, Jake? Maybe you can help me. But um, was it 14? Oh, 14. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I got the chapter wrong. That's twice today. I'm getting this. Obviously, there's a real problem here with me in chapters. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Exodus 3 is when Moses is called. It's 14, 14. Thank you. When Moses is, he made a dad proud again. There you go. So it's when, it's when uh, Israel's leaving Egypt, and they get to the banks of the Red Sea, and God says to them, you only need to stand still and watch while I fight for you. I'm, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. But the deliverance out of Egypt is not because you're awesome, because you guys are great warriors, or thank goodness you guys are great warriors because we can then get this done, sort of tag-teaming this thing. No. They're slaves. They are utterly helpless. They have nothing. They're shepherds. They're not fighters. They're not warriors. They're slaves. They go out, and then all of a sudden the great army comes after them, and they're looking back to the horizon. There's a big plume of dust as the, as the horses and chariots of Pharaoh are rushing toward them. And you remember because they start barking at Moses, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? I mean, they're just like, this is a great plan, Moses. You get us out here and now here they come. They're going to kill us all. And even Moses doesn't know what to do. He turns to the Lord and he says, what am I doing here? And that's when he says, you tell them, you stand still and watch. All you need to do is stand still. And Moses turns back and says, you just stand still and watch while the Lord fights for you. If this thing is going to be done, it's not going to be done because you're awesome. <laughs> it's not going to be done because you guys bring a lot to the table or I bring a lot to the table. I can tell you this right now in my own preaching. I know this. So your pastor knows this as he stands up here and speaks to you. If anything's going to happen in your heart right now, it's not because I'm winsome. It's not because I can really put a sentence together. It's not because, well, I've studied many years in seminary. I know these things. 
If anything's going to happen in your heart right now, it's going to happen because of the gift of God. Now, he'll use my words to be sure, but it is not the power of my words, nor my eloquence, my raspy voice, or my forgetfulness, all the things that are happening today, that's going to impact your soul. It's going to be the work of God. I just need to stand still and watch and see what the Lord does with you. This is the principle that comes so clear to us in this story here. And by the way, I think the Lord thinks, I don't know if they're going to get it. I don't know if they're going to get it. So I'm going to make Isaac also marry a barren woman. <laughs> so he marries Rebecca and she's barren. And the Lord finally gives Jacob notice. And they said, just to, just to just, just put a little dot on that eye, I'll have Jacob marry Rachel, his beloved, and she will be barren until I open her womb. And I want you all to begin to get the point here that yes, there's promises, but these promises are going to be fulfilled. And when they are, it will not be the might of your hands, but it will be me. It will be my gift to you. That's what it is. It's not a power play. It's reality. It's a gift. Well, this is the God that we serve. We serve a God who brings something out of nothing. And we get that right in the very beginning of creation. It's God who says, let there be. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As St. Augustine said, he creates ex nihilo out of nothing. God speaks into nothingness, and there's something. God speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light, and there's light. So from the very beginning, in the first sermon that we preached on Christ in the Old Testament, going back to literally Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and just thinking about that reality, this is the God that we serve, a God who on his own does not depend, nor is he limited by our resources or pre-existing materials, but he, by his sovereignty, brings about what he proclaims. Let there be, and there is. And into the empty, barren womb of Sarah, he says, let there be, and there is. And so also he comes to Mary this virgin, and says, I'm going to do the same here. But here now, in the womb of Mary, he will bring about the true child of promise, that one to whom Isaac only merely pointed, even Jesus Christ, and brings him out of nothing, right? Literally out of nothing, into the womb by the work of the Holy Spirit into Mary. And through Mary now, righteousness God himself enters into the barrenness of our world. He enters into a world in which there is no hope of salvation. There is no way we escape the power of Satan. There is no way in which we escape the power of sin. There is no way that we escape escape the, the grave. Yet into that nothingness, he speaks his word. And the word becomes flesh and dwells among us through the barren, or the empty, if you will, womb of Mary. Into this world of darkness comes the light of the world, the incarnate word of God, and there brings life and light and salvation and for us hope. So what child is this? Well, he's a child of emptiness, a child of barrenness. Then secondly, he's a child of laughter. He's a child of laughter. Again, I've told you before, one of my favorite little little moments in the scriptures is that one in chapter 18 when these men are there and they come and they say this promise to Sarah or to Abram and Sarah's in the tent listening out there and 
and says, hey, when I come back, we're going to come back. And when we come back, Sarah's going to have had a baby. And Sarah's, Sarah's in, in the tent. She's like, I'm not a baby. And she, <laughs> she it, it doesn't even seem like she, she does a gut-busting laugh. I mean, it just says she, she chuckles to herself. She laughs in herself, he says. So she's kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to have a baby. And, and they say, well, hey, why was Sarah, Abraham, why is Sarah laughing about this? And Sarah, I guess, pops her head out of the tent and, I wasn't laughing. He says, no, you were laughing. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I don't know. It's something I just love about the fact that these, these men decide, no, they're going to, no, I, you were laughing. We caught you laughing, okay? I'm sorry. Might have been in yourself, but we know you're laughing. I just love that little back and forth. All those old realities in the, in the Old Testament reminds me, this, this stuff's true. Uh, well, he's a child of laughter. That is a child of disbelief. You know, it's one thing that there's emptiness. It's one thing that Sarah can't have children. That's one thing. But this kind of heightens it, right? It's not just that we bring nothing to the table. What we bring is laughter. What we bring is disbelief. That's, that's even worse than nothing, right? It's not only we know we can't get it done, oh, you're going to get it done, and we chuckle about it. We don't believe it. We tend not to believe the amazing promises of God. Sarah can't believe this is ridiculous. Who cares about the fact that God had made the promise long ago that he had uh, committed himself to it in a covenant in the, in the tearing apart of these animals with Abram and made these promises. So this isn't the first time she'd heard this. But she laughs. She chuckles about it. Disbelief is the reality that Isaac is born into. And of course, even Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't hear Israel laughing at the time of Christ. Now, this is the beauty of Mary. Mary's sort of, in, in some ways, the anti Sarah, right? She doesn't laugh. She doesn't laugh. She questions. She says, how can this be? But when the Lord, through the angel, says, I'm going to do it, she says, then let it be. Right? She, she, she says, yes, may it be uh, as you say to me. But Israel, in some sense, where, where's their belief? When Jesus comes, it's as if they laugh. This can't be. Can anything good uh, come out of Nazareth? You know, ha, 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 they laugh. Jesus goes around with his teaching and his claims, and they laugh, they mock. And of course, we know when we get to the cross, the laughing, the mocking, the spitting, right? The, the plucking of his beard. No, there's a refusal to acknowledge. It's one thing, again, that we have nothing, we bring nothing to the table, but it's a whole other degree when we mock, when we laugh, when we doubt. But this is our nature. God makes these amazing promises not to neutral people, not to those, again, who just have nothing, but he makes these promises to losers. He makes these promises to doubters. He makes these promises to rebels. That's the, that, that, this is what we confess when we come and confess our sins and receive the assurance of pardon. We recognize, Lord, you haven't just made these promises to weak people. You've made them to your enemies. You've made them to the people who have said no. That's the reality of what we have. And, and Isaac, we see it here in this text. And as Mark said uh, wonderfully in, in, uh, in his prayer, that, that the time will come sort of on the other side where we laugh out of celebration. And, and Sarah, I think, picks up on that because now the child's born. And, and uh, she says, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. That's a good laughter. That's a laughter of, can you believe it? It's the kind of laughter we do when we don't know what else to do. 
when something just delights us. I, I, I remember, you know, being up in a mountain and, and, and hiking and looking out and just seeing this grand expanse. It was just so magnificent and beautiful. And I remember laughing. And I remember what was weird about it is I thought, why am I laughing right now? Why am I laughing? Because I didn't know what else to do. It was just so beautiful. It overwhelmed me to such a degree. I, I didn't know what else to do. I was just chuckling. Just I couldn't believe how beautiful it is. That's a good laughter. That's a laughter of delight and joy. That's the laughter that, yes, we celebrate now as we think about the glory of our Savior. But that is not the laughter that Sarah did when she was in the tent. The laughter in the tent was a laughter of, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's the laughter that perhaps we get when we talk about the gospel with our non-believing friends. When we talk about things that seem too amazing, like life from the dead. Yeah, right. When we talk about a new creation, when we talk about the hope of victory over death, you get the chuckles from the world. Yet this is the reality into which our Savior is born. It's the reality into which God fulfills and keeps his promises. Isaac is a child of barrenness. He's a child of laughter. And then finally, and ultimately, he's a child of promise. Isaac and his miraculous birth doesn't come out of nowhere. God had promised that this is what he was going to do. And what we see in the birth of Isaac is that our God is a God who keeps his laughable promises. He keeps promises that are so crazy that we don't know what to do other than chuckle. But God is a promise keeper. God said he's going to do it. And though, no question about it, he dragged it out to make the point clear, this is not, I want to make it real clear that it's me doing this and not you doing this. But at the end of the day, God kept his promise. And we've talked about this is what we celebrate in the season of Advent, right? We stand on this side of the birth of Isaac. We stand on this side of the birth of Jesus Christ. We live in an unbelievable, awesome time. We just read, we're reading in our morning assembly as we begin our school day, we're reading uh, the Advent text from the lectionary for this year. So that's just our morning. I said, let's, let's read those. I'll try to give the kids some idea of the season of Advent. <clears throat> and the, the uh, epistle reading, the New Testament reading last week was Romans 13, 11 through 14. And Paul begins this, this little passage um, by saying, do this, that is everything I've just told you to do, do this knowing the times in which you live. Do this understanding the moment you're in. You and I live in an unbelievable moment because we're on this side of the birth of Isaac. We're on this side of the birth of Jesus Christ. You talk about waiting a long time. Okay, he, he waited, what, 80 years for the, for the birth of Isaac. Yeah, he waited 2,000 years for the birth of Jesus. I mean, think about growing weary in the waiting. I mean, this is what people think like when you talk about the second coming. I mean, here we stand in this season of Advent, not just looking forward to the birth of our Savior. That's happened already. But we look forward to his second coming. But here we are, 2,000 years in the waiting. You begin to chuckle at some point. Is it going to happen? Yeah, but remember the times in which you live. You live on this side. We get to see that, yes, he promised and he waited, and he came through. That has to fill our heart with good laughter. 
That has to fill our heart with joy. That has to fill our hearts with confidence. It has to strengthen our knees and, and, our, and our arms, right? Don't let them hang feebly, say the scriptures, but be strong, knowing that the God we serve is a God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises, even if there is a long delay. What do the scriptures tell us? Wait on me. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, but you're going to have to wait. But know that the God who makes promises is a God who keeps them. And God made promises to Abram, and he made promises to humanity, going back to Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel that we looked at. And we have seen God keep his word, and we know absolute certainty that he will complete what he has begun in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Isaac's the child of promise, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate child of promise. And when we say child of promise, what was the promise? Not just that, oh, there'll be a miraculous birth, but that through this child, something will happen. It's not just, wow, look at that miracle. It said, no, 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 this child will come and God will do something through him. Remember back to Genesis 12, one of the texts we looked at, right? Abram, through you and your seed, through you and your offspring, here he is. Through you and your offspring, something's going to happen. Through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But you'll remember, we asked the question. We said, when God made that promise, we put a big fat question mark over the text, a big fat question mark over the whole Old Testament, saying, how? How can all the sinful nations be blessed through my offspring? Sin demands judgment. Sin demands damnation. How can they be blessed by one of my offspring? And even the birth of Isaac doesn't solve this problem for us. It is not until we get to this amazing promise to Mary, and through Mary, the true child of promise, that we begin to see the answer to this child, of, to this question that is hanging over this child of promise. Through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How? This amazing child came to do something and he came to bear the sin of the world, to bear the sin of all nations upon him. That might make you chuckle if you hadn't really seen it play itself out. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. Death is going to be conquered through him. All sins will be forgiven through him. Yes. Yes, through this amazing child of promise. He comes and bears it all so that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. After his resurrection, go ye therefore now unto all nations, making disciples of them and baptizing them. And know I'm with you even to the end of the age. And what do we do? But laugh. We can laugh now with great joy because, oh my goodness, it actually happened. The Lord has kept his promise in a way in which we could never have imagined. He himself took on our flesh and bore our guilt and paid for our sin that we through him might be righteous. We of all people, the laughers, we of all people, the barren ones, might be acceptable, holy, and righteous to Almighty God. This is the hope that we have. And so in this season, let us rejoice, let us laugh in celebration over the birth of our Savior, the Word made flesh, the one raised from the dead who gives life from the dead and the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for you are a promise keeper. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our laughing, our doubting. For Father, you are the one who has kept his promise in the most unbelievable of ways. You yourself, through your Son, became flesh, dwelt among us, that you might bear all our sin, bear all our scoffing, bear all our mocking, bear all our laughing, all the way to the cross, that there, as we, your younger brothers, oh Jesus, nailed you to the cross, your blood would cry out for our forgiveness and our reconciliation with the Father. And so now we laugh, but we laugh with joy as Sarah laughed on the other side of the birth of Isaac. And we give you thanks that you have redeemed us. Fill us with confidence, we pray, that we might go forth from this place to serve you, to proclaim your name to the nations. For it is through this child of promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We thank you for blessing us with this salvation and how we long for the salvation of many others. Use us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.